0: Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. We've explored many challenging topics on the podcast so far. But one of the major topics that we haven't yet touched on has been trauma. Most people will experience some form of trauma in their lives. About 60% of U.S. adults have said that they have experienced significant abuse or neglect as a child. Having a serious illness or disability is traumatizing. And so is poverty and discrimination and the loss of those that we love. We'll all face old age, disease, and death. And even if we ourselves haven't had a truly traumatic experience in our lives, it's extremely likely that we know someone who has. Neither Dr. Hansen nor certainly myself would describe ourselves as experts in the topic of trauma, which is one of the reasons that we haven't explored it in depth as of yet. And today we have the pleasure, and really the honor, of being joined by someone who is, Dr. James Gordon. Dr. Gordon is a Harvard-educated psychiatrist and internationally recognized expert on using self-awareness, self-care, and group support to heal population-wide psychological trauma. He is founder and executive director of the nonprofit Center for Mind-Body Medicine in Washington, D.C., a clinical professor at Georgetown Medical School and was chairman under Presidents Clinton and G.W. Bush of the White House Commission on Complementary and Alternative Medicine Policy. For more than 25 years, he's led teams from the center to relieve population-wide psychological trauma during and after wars in the Balkans and Middle East, after climate-related disasters in Louisiana, Texas, Puerto Rico, Haiti, and California, in communities affected by school shootings, and with active-duty U.S. military and veterans and their families. Dr. Corden has authored or edited 10 books and written for a range of publications including The New York Times, Washington Post, The Atlantic, The Guardian, and many professional journals. His latest book, The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma, guides us step-by-step in a comprehensive, evidence-based program to reverse the psychological and biological damage that trauma causes, bringing together the latest scientific research, 50 years of clinical experience, timeless wisdom, and inspiring stories. As you might expect, the topics that we're going to be exploring during this episode are deep and soulful and often really challenging or even triggering. There are going to be times where we use language that's really very specific and give descriptions of different kinds of traumatic acts. And because of that, if this is a territory that is challenging for you, then I recommend that you go slow or even consider skipping this episode. Above all else, please be kind to yourself. So, Dr. Gordon, it's truly a pleasure to have you with us here today. How are you doing?
1: Thank you. Happy to be here. Happy to see you.
0: So, Jim, I
2: met you about half a dozen years ago, and I was in awe of you then, and I'm in even more awe of you now. (laughs) Um, And the reason being that, to me, you're such a model of someone who is rock solid in terms of research and clinical practice while at the same time being highly innovative and also at the same time profoundly dedicated to service. So for me, you really are the walking, talking demonstration of all those together. Mm. And in your background, you've done a ton of things. You've written a number of books, as Forrest just alluded to. Now you've got this new one, The Transformation. When I read through it, it's beautifully written. It's highly accessible, and it's clearly the work of a mature mind. I'm not referring to your age, although maybe who knows, but, but clearly this is a, this is a real culmination for you in a lot of ways. And I wanted to give you a chance to talk about, in effect, why this book, why now? What's special about it for you? What's the summary key takeaway that you'd really like people to know related to this book, The Transformation?
1: Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Forrest, for the intro. Thank you, Rick. And I really appreciate what you've done in bringing so much of the science and bringing it together with spirituality and teaching so many people about how they can move into this realm of healing themselves. So for me, writing this book was really a response to a question that I received from a number of people they said, well, you've written about depression, you've written about cancer, you've written about a new medical model. Uh, what about writing a book for everyone? And I thought, hmm, a book for everyone, that's an interesting idea. What, what does that mean? And the more I went into it, the more I thought about it, the more I started work on three different books at the same time, it came to me that it had to be a book on trauma. Psychological trauma comes to everyone sooner or later in our lives. And by writing about trauma, I could both help people understand that trauma, the challenges that come to us are a part of life. They're not apart from life. And then at the same time, I could present a comprehensive program of self-care, drawing on 50 years of experience doing this work uh, that everyone could use. Everyone, regardless of whether they were a very young person or a very old person, that they could identify with the people I've written about in the book. They could use the techniques and they could very quickly see the benefits from the techniques. So it was a way of putting it all together to make it accessible for that everyone who I hope will read it.
2: The fact that you chose trauma or in a broader term suffering as the universal lens through which to look at humanity is really striking. and. I'm touched myself by some recent translations of the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism that have reframed them not so much as Four Noble Truths, but rather Four Ennobling Tasks, that it ennobles us and others to face suffering in ourselves and others. That's the first task of all. That is ennobling. It's a beautiful reframing, and it seems very consistent with what you're talking about here.
1: Exactly. And I think Buddhism has helped to bring this truth. It is actually far more ancient than Buddhism or any of our modern religions. This is a truth that aboriginal people, many of whom I've worked with around the world, also know that the understanding was the trauma, the challenges that life brings us are the soil in which wisdom and compassion grow. I'm very pleased, humbled, proud, (laughs) glad to be part of that tradition and to bring it forth and to have experienced it. In my own life as well as in work with other people. And I think that great tradition, it's an important thing for us to be aware of, particularly in a time when we're rushing away from our roots, when we've lost connection with who we are, we've lost connection with this planet on which we're living, we've lost connection with larger communities in which humanity was birthed, and we're we've become so individualistic and so separate and so reluctant to admit our own vulnerability. I, you know as you well know, I mean there's this ethos of you know we've got to get ahead. the show must go on. can't show weakness of any kind. and there's so many forces in our society that are pushing us to do this and in pushing us to keep on moving ahead and not acknowledge and experience our vulnerability. We're being deprived of the healing that could come, and as you've said, of, of the kind of blossoming of mm-hmm. wisdom and compassion that can come through trauma. So the book is in the service of that ancient tradition, and a kind of, I hope, a kind of corrective to some of the forces that are there, and me- certainly in medicine. It's not just in the society at large; it's in my own profession. You know, there's a tendency to diagnose and treat the symptoms and say you've got to get over this fast and We've got to use the medication to bring you through this. In the vast majority of cases, it's just not true and it becomes counterproductive.
0: That's a wonderful reflection and a great framing for the whole conversation here in terms of what we can do to work with that experience that's traumatic and potentially how we can use it as a growth opportunity in some cases, even as you're referencing here. So, Doctor, we kind of have two tasks for us as interviewers during this conversation. And the first of those tasks, We want to go into kind of the actual material of the book itself, this wonderful framing you have of the progress uh, that somebody can take through uh, working with and eventually ultimately releasing a traumatic experience. And then in the second task, we want to get more into your experience personally as somebody who's been on the, the front lines of this process for so many years. So living inside of that first task for the moment I think that almost anyone, any reasonable person would accept how trauma can cause psychological damage and damage to a society, but some people are less familiar with the physiological damage that trauma can cause. So I was hoping that you could speak to that for a moment.
1: One way to look at it that is not completely comprehensive, but is pretty much pretty much the summary of the story, regardless of whether that's coming from abuse as a child, or loss of a relationship that's important, or economic challenges, or dealing with the fragility of old age, and losses at that time, or our impending death. Two basic physiological reactions. One is fight or flight. And this is, uh, as, as, as you both know, but as to share with our listeners, this is a reaction that all vertebrates have. Walter Bradford Cannon, almost 100 years ago, identified fight or flight. And it's a basic survival response. And so what happens is we, our blood pressure goes up, our heart rate goes up, the big muscles in our body, the ones we can fight with or run with, get tense and prepared to engorge with blood. Blood rushes away from our hands. Our digestion doesn't work so well. Centers of our brain responsible for fear and anger, like the amygdala and the emotional brain, are stimulated very strongly. And centers in the frontal cortex that have to do with self awareness and judgment and compassion are down regulated. And also, it's not so easy to connect with other people because when you're trying to get away from a a lion who's chasing you, it's no time to stop and hang out and have a, you know, hang out with your fellow antelope, for example. Now, the thing about fight or flight, which all of us have experienced many, many times, fight or flight is a life saving response. The problem is when it continues long after it's needed, when we essentially keep the lion with us after we've escaped onto the plane and you know we're, we're out there again, but we're still feeling the lion. Now, animals, if you look at nature films, you look at an antelope, I'm, I'm, antelopes are on my brain at the moment, antelope who's being chased by a lion, if she's lucky enough to get away, two minutes later, she's happily grazing. Fight or flight has come, done its job, and it's gone. And the antelope is back to normal behavior. We humans carry the lion with us. So we have images in our mind of what caused the trauma. We have nightmares of what caused the trauma. Our body is tense. We're agitated. We have difficulty focusing. Our heart rate is up. And this can go on for weeks, months, years, years a whole lifetime unless we resolve it. The second major biological response is less well-known but is becoming more important in our understanding is the freeze response. And fight or flight is when you can fight or you can flee. Freeze response comes when the situation is overwhelming and inescapable. So if you think about a situation in which you're a small child, and your parents are are beating on you, and they're not listening to you, and they're not paying any attention to what's going on with you. These are the people you're dependent on. The situation, what they're doing to you is overwhelming, and and there's nowhere for you to go. The same is true uh, if we're assaulted by someone much bigger or by a bunch of people. Uh, If we're in a war, it happens to both civilians and combatants in a war. What happens with animals that go into a freeze response. Freeze had come, done its job, and gone. We humans stay in that frozen state, shut down, detached, sometimes dissociated. Sometimes we have no... Talk to people who've been raped or people who've been terribly assaulted or I've done a lot of work with people who've been tortured, both tortured in their childhood homes, but also tortured by political regimes. And they say, I don't feel like I'm in my body. I'm looking at myself from the corner of the room all the time. I can't connect with my own body. Often enough, I can't connect with other people. I can't have an intimate relationship. The difficulties at what we see after the trauma is over, or if for some reason the trauma is ongoing, is often a mixed picture. It's all the symptoms of fight or flight, the agitation, the flashbacks, the nightmares, the difficulty focusing and also at times the symptoms of freezing, the shutdown, the disconnection, the feeling of the body being numb. So those are the physiological bases. And they also, both of those, and the freeze even more than the fight or flight, keep us detached from other people.
2: I think of, as you well know, the haunting title, I believe, of Babette Rothschild's book, The Body Remembers. right. So we're going to move through, ideally, kind of three levels of intervention here. First being, what can the individual do themselves? Then what can be done in the interpersonal field with other others? And then at the macro level of society and policy altogether. So just starting with individuals. People listening, say, who may well have been traumatized themselves, or if they're like me, I would actually, I reserve the word trauma for what I think of as actually really, really trauma. I don't think I've ever been really traumatized. I've had a lot of painful, stressful, upsetting, not good experiences. And those can add up over time. So whether it's someone who's been full-blown traumatized or someone more like me, <laughs> the worried well, I think as Freud have put it a long time ago, If you could give us some headlines here, your top three, your top seven, that's about as many as I can possibly remember, suggestions for what can an individual do themselves from the inside out to help themselves if they're grappling with the impact of those kind of
1: events? Sure. I think the first thing is to appreciate the fact that you have been traumatized, that what you're describing, these situations that are so painful. Yeah, I I think when we compare ourselves, I think those comparisons don't serve anyone very well.
2: Oh, okay. I'm getting some therapy from Dr. Jim here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm signed up. Keep it coming. <laughs> really? Just to understand that that the trauma has come, yeah, and, and, and drop the comparisons. Yeah. would be that'd be the first thing. Just under, whatever it is, maybe you had a breakup. I know yeah. when I was a kid, my first real passionate love we broke up i was devastated yeah i really was significantly affected i had some moments of freeze and some moments of fight or flight so that's the first thing second is to become aware of the fact that some of the symptoms that you may have that anyone may have may come from trauma that we don't remember so well or may indeed come from trauma that happened to our ancestors we know now as you know very well that the consequences of trauma can be passed on from one generation to the next.
2: Right, just for listeners through epigenetic processes that you know well,
1: yeah. Exactly, exactly. These are changes in the chromosomes, not in the structure of the genes, but in substances in the chromosomes which determine how the genes act in our bodies. When our parents or grandparents have suffered very significant trauma, the genes that help us cope with stress may not be functioning very well. And those epigenetic, epi means above in Greek, those changes that affect the genes can be passed on from grandparents to parents to children, even when there's no contact between the children and the parents and the grandparents. And we know that from animal studies, and we know that from studies of Holocaust survivors. So I see people sometimes who wonder, why am I so afraid? You know, my, my parents were nice people. I, went, I lived in a pretty good neighborhood. What's going on? And sometimes what you discover is, well, it has to do with the fact that the parent, the grandparents or the parents grew up in situations that were very threatening. So it's important to be aware of that. It doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean you have psychopathology. It simply means that you're inadequately prepared because of gene- the epigenetic changes to deal with the stress in your life. Third thing that's really important, and I know this will be you know, very so clear to you, is doing meditation. Meditation is the antidote to drama. There are all different kinds of meditation. None is better, none is worse. It's important for everyone to realize. Some people say, this is the only way. That's nonsense. There are many kinds of meditation created in different societies at different times to meet different needs. The first one that I teach in the transformation that we teach wherever we go in the world is soft belly breathing, breathing slowly and deeply. You can do this with me while I'm talking and while you're listening, breathing slowly and deeply in through your nose and out through your mouth with your belly soft and relaxed. And this is a concentrated meditation, and so you're focusing on the breath. You're focusing on the word soft as you breathe in, and belly as you breathe out, and you're focusing on the feeling of your belly being soft and relaxed. This is the antidote to the fight or flight response. It begins to bring physiology and psychology back into balance. This one technique I have seen be the beginning of healing, quite literally for thousands and thousands, probably tens of thousands of people by now. And the people we've trained—we've now trained six or seven thousand people—have worked with many hundreds of thousands, and and it works. And in the book, I teach it at great length and give all the explanations and all the physiology. But it's so ridiculously simple. What I what I'm fond of saying is if meditation were patentable and profitable, every doctor on the planet would prescribe it the first visit for every patient. And the evidence is there for reducing anxiety, improving mood, improving immunity, decreasing high blood pressure, decreasing high blood sugar, all these different physiological functions. So some kind of quiet meditation is a foundation on which you can, gives you the, stability and the ease and helps your mind to function well enough to use all of the other techniques in the book, guided imagery, spending time in nature, using drawings, movement, verbal expression of various kinds. The next thing that I want to, we may not get through seven, but the next one that I want to emphasize is using expressive meditations. These are the oldest meditations on the planet. There are three kinds of meditations, essentially. Concentrated meditations, we just did one. Mindfulness or awareness of thoughts, feelings, sensations as they arise. Concentrated is in every major religion and all indigenous people that I know of. Mindfulness is a Buddhist innovation, maybe 2,500 years old. And expressive meditations are older than concentrated. And you can look at the cave paintings in the south of France. You see what sure looks like the humans dancing with the animals. Expressive meditations work with the body and help us release the stress, the trauma, the tension that's there in our bodies, help us open up our minds, help our emotions that we've suppressed to emerge they are crucial. All indigenous people use them. And it's really important in working with trauma to use expressive meditations. The first one that I teach, and I teach a bunch of them in the transformation, is shaking and dancing. Now, we we don't have time to do the whole thing here, but it's very simple. (laughs) You just stand up with your knees bent and you shake your body for five or six minutes. That's exactly what the mouse was doing when she escaped from the cat. Shake it off. In other words, shake it off. Shake it off. It's so basic, so beautiful. And pretty much everyone who does it has a sense of being a little freer, a little more relaxed, a little energized. Often emotions will come up, which is beautiful. Because as I said, we're, we're told, our whole society says, no, we don't want to hear about that. Just go back to work, even after school shootings in so many places. Everybody is saying, the principals are saying in the schools, teachers, kids, just get back to work. But people are having anxiety attacks. They're tense. They're worried. They're fearful. So this helps to break up those patterns. And then all the other techniques and all the other possibilities open up, all the ones I describe in the transformation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great list for starters. Four great practices to kind of begin with and to to settle your practice inside of. As you just said at the end, there so many instances of a traumatic experience of trauma, broadly stated, happen between us and someone else. They happen in the social relationship. Sometimes this is with people that we'll never see again in our lives. It's with a, a hit and run driver. It's with somebody who commits an atrocity and then commits suicide. Whatever it might be. Sometimes they're with people that we're going to have to live with and that are very challenging to avoid. Uh, Family members, people inside of the the social framework, I'm thinking here of sub-Saharan Africa and some work that you've done there. And they're people who are kind of woven into that fabric of our day-to-day existence. In maybe each of those cases... What are some of the things that you've seen have been really helpful uh, for people in terms of healing that, uh, that social interaction that they can then kind of return to and feel safe inside of?
1: The first thing is you got to work on yourself. Yeah. That's the basic thing. At our meetings here at Center for Mind-Body Medicine and everywhere we go, whenever we're doing a training or a meeting with a patient, we just do some soft belly breathing together. Kind of quiet ourselves so we're no longer quite as reactive. If you look at our society, people are talking past each other. I mean, look at the television. Nobody's listening to anybody else any of the time at all. So I think the first thing is you're not going to change anyone else. It's not so easy to change anyone else. But if you change, if you create a calmer space, then it becomes easier to. Discuss whatever the issues are that are there. The other thing is, and I'm just talking about individuals right now, you can use this approach with couples. There's no question. What you have to do then is tell each one to shut up while the other is talking, which is what we do in our groups. We don't analyze, we don't interpret, we don't interrupt. We create a situation. And I know that there, there are plenty of people who are working with couples and families who, who do this, and it's really important. Start off with bringing yourself into balance and then have an opportunity just to listen to the other person. And when you speak, and this is sort of couples therapy or family therapy 101, that's right there. When you speak, speak about what's happening inside you. Don't analyze the other person. Don't try to fix the other person. That's a fool's errand. And then we also use creative techniques. It's wonderful. For example, we do drawings. So you do drawings and three drawings we often do to begin with. You draw yourself, draw yourself with your biggest problem, and draw yourself with your problem solved. You do that. Each person or whole family does it. And then you show each other the drawings and you talk about the drawings. And it enters a a realm of the imagination. So you can do all of the techniques you can use guided imagery consulting a wise guide accessing your unconscious that way or your intuition or your imagination so doing the techniques of self-care and sharing your experience with each other that's a fundamental way that, that we work a lot of people we've worked with the expressive meditations are very helpful so parent and the child are locked in combat first often one of them or the other, it depends on which one is engaged in learning the technique. Sometimes it's a kid. The kid will go off and shake and dance by herself to maybe six, seven, eight years old. And it feels a little bit better. Kid's been in a group learning these techniques. And then the mother or the father says, oh, let me try that with you. Or else, in the case of transformation, six-year-old's not going to be able to read it, although a 16-year-old can easily read it. And the parent starts practicing these techniques, and the kids will get interested. And then maybe the the spouse or the partner will be interested as well. So it's a kind of uh, setting an example and then giving people an opportunity to do this with each other. And we've done this uh, both with families and also with people who quite literally have been killing each other, Israelis and Palestinians. I was in South Sudan recently working with members of warring parties. And you have to give people an opportunity to bring out what's inside, to bring out their fear, their anger, to share that. And then you give them one of these techniques to be able to move through it. And it's an ongoing process. It's not something that, you know, if you're locked in family conflict, it's not going to, you're not going to get over it overnight. The other thing. That I just want to mention is if the conflict is so overwhelming and so difficult, you got to reach out to other people. Yeah. One of the terrible things about the way we, so many of us, live here in the United States is we're so isolated. We don't have that extended family, we don't have that community that we can reach out to. People, you talk to people in other countries. I remember being in South Africa and talking with uh, somebody who was in a lot of trouble with the law early in his life, he said, but, you know, I always had some auntie who would love me. There was always somebody I could go to no matter how bad things got. So that's also very important for people is to have that opportunity and to encourage that.
0: I think that that's a good place to bring this side of the episode to a close. So far today, we've explored ways that people can work inside themselves to disentangle from their own traumatic experiences. And in the next part, we're going to explore more your personal history and all of the fantastic work that you've done working with victims of trauma. So today we began by talking about Dr. Gordon's new book, The Transformation, and why the topic of trauma is such a universal one. We went into both the psychological and physiological damage that trauma can leave in the body. Dr. Gordon emphasized how these psychological experiences leave their traces inside of our physiology. He emphasized the fight, flight, or freeze response and how we tend to carry those experiences forward with us in time while our mammalian cousins tend to leave them behind and the long-term damage that that can cause over time. He then gave four great pieces of advice for people trying to work through traumatic experiences themselves particularly emphasizing the importance of accepting that something bad has happened to you, and then the various meditative practices that can sometimes help us move through that experience and eventually release it altogether. So that's it for part one of our episode with Dr. Gordon. To remind you, his latest book is The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. If you're interested in learning more about it, I'll include a link to the book in the description of today's podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, if you appreciate the content that we're trying to put out into the world here, we would really appreciate it. Also, if you would consider subscribing to the podcast, leaving a rating, a positive review, and maybe even sharing it with somebody that you think it could benefit. It's really the best way to help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.